0: I made 40 here, so one of my favorite commentators on this channel is Mr. Reasonable and Responsible. And his comments make me think you know, about as a, at a high a percentage as anyone, in large part because he kind of goes against the, the tendency of the, the chat and the commentary on this show, which is kind of jocular, you know, ribbing, teasing, and uh, he's more likely to be serious and res- morally responsible and so i just did a, a stream earlier today about this ridiculous 10 million dollar statue of martin luther king in boston which looks like a statue of his flaccid penis and so i used a, an image of this ridiculous new statue across most of my screen for the first few minutes of my live stream and uh, and Mr. Reasonable and Responsible calls me on and says, you know, must you display such an, you know, an obscene image, right, on, on your live stream? And so live streaming, you're balancing a lot, of, a lot of competing values, like in life. So one, there's a competing value not to put obscenity on a screen. Number two, you know, don't put something sexually provocative on a show don't put a stumbling block before the blind to, to quote from the Torah so that's that's certainly a value another value is to put a picture of what you're talking about so given that my, my audience is you know, overwhelmingly hetero you know, putting putting a picture of this uh, ridiculous Martin Luther King statue in, in Boston uh, seems like a good call but uh, yeah there, there are competing values so on the one hand, you want you know live streams to be as off the cuff and easy and relaxed as possible. So if you, you know, search for tips on how to be a good live streamer, they, they talk to you about you know just saying virtually anything that comes into your mind. You want that that stream of consciousness operating. That that's what makes the most compelling show. Now on the other hand, that, that also militates against saying things that are reasonable and, and responsible. So do we do we try to live a life that uh, you know absolutely minimizes the chances of doing harm to other people, or are there other values such as the entertainment value of showing this ridiculous Martin Luther King statue, or the truth value of showing people what you know, what all the hubbubs about bub? So yeah, I like like Mr. Reasonable and Responsible's challenges and so I often keep him in mind when I'm making decisions on how to conduct a a live stream. So I want to do a live stream that contains spontaneity, that is realistic, that is in a stream of consciousness, that also contains something that's thought-provoking and considered and reasonable and responsible and uh, if it's going to affect people, I'd prefer it to affect them you know, positively or n- no effect whatsoever. On the other hand, you can then sanitize what you're doing to such a degree that it loses its power. So, you've got uh, competing values here, right? It's not like the most sanitized antiseptic live stream is the best, and on the other hand... Uh, the, the, the wildest, you know, least censored live stream, not necessarily the best either. So, there was a question that I got about, about a relationship. So anyway, Mr. Reasonable Responsible says, Do you have to choose that indecent image as the frozen screenshot for a stream? Well, it was. Come on, tell me that that Martin Luther King statue in Boston that cost $10 million is not ridiculous. Uh, other comments here. Michelle Malkin got sucked into the Nick Fuentes orbit, and now she's retired from the journalism. So, yeah, Nick is Nick is compelling. He's entertaining, and, you know, it's easy to, if, if you're sympathetic with, with many of his points, it's like it's easy to defend him. On the other hand, he says so many really stupid, horrible things that... You really have to surrender too much of your conscience and your discrimination and your good taste to consistently support him. Virtual virtual, uh, Pilgrim, another one of my favorite commentators, is Lucas playing a video of these various women, uh, black and brown and Middle Eastern women, beating each other up. This took place in Belgium. He's talking about in-group versus out-group. He said that people are willing to stand around and watch people get beat up if they're not part of their in-group. I think my major point was that if it's not safe to intervene in situations like this, and if, you, if your society is so diverse that you don't feel ownership over your society, you're more likely to let these things go on. So if you own property, all right, you're less likely to put up with you know, bad behavior on your property than if it's public property that you don't own. And so if people feel an ownership of their society, which people are more likely to do if there's one dominant group that dominates the society, then you're less likely to just allow bad behavior to operate. So it's a lot more than just in-group versus out-group. Said people are more willing to stand around and watch people get beat up if they're not part of their in-group, also if you don't feel a sense of ownership over your society. In 1970, when I lived in El Cajon, California, going to junior high, there were a number of fights. I hated them. I would leave and not watch. I was astonished that all the girls gathered around and were cheering and laughing while two boys beat each other up, did not understand how they could enjoy such violence. It was an all-white school, so everyone was part of the in-group." Well, the human being has an infinite capacity to divide up into in-group versus out-group. So you can have an all-white school that still contains many different in-groups. All right, uh, here's another question. Hey, I was in a three-year relationship with a mentally unstable girl who I changed to be a much healthier and stronger person over the time period. I ended the relationship as I began to question whether her mental instability well as a general lack of critical thinking would pass on to my children. Think of her daily. I was just wondering whether you thought I made the right decision. She tried to kill herself at age 15. She has cuts all over her arms and legs. Thanks. Okay. First of all, I need to be humble here, i it never been able to sustain a relationship longer than a year, and <laughs> I'm a 56 year old man. Okay, second, uh, you're you you're unable to have relationships with anyone who's significantly different in differentiation or emotional maturity than yourself. So I'm sure she could, this girl could also deliver a fairly scathing critique of you. So if she's mentally unstable, that would, would have to resonate with a large part of you. Otherwise, you would not have been able to be in a relationship with her uh, for three years. So anyone that you're in a relationship for you know, longer than, than a month with, right, they're going to be at approximately your level of maturity. So, however mentally stable, unstable she was, that would have to match something in you. And as for you changing her to be a much healthier and stronger person, yeah, I'm sure that we, we can affect other people, we can sometimes provide them with an emotionally corrective experience, but overwhelmingly, if she changed to be a healthier and stronger person, that is on her and her decisions. Right? You can only change someone in a direction that they want to go. And so, I, I, I credit her for, for most of that change. When you ended the relationship, you began to question whether her mental instability and a lack of critical thinking would pass on to my children. Well, again, there would have to be a lot of um, mental instability in you for you to have a three-year relationship with this woman. So I'm going to assume that she had a positive effect on you as well. Uh, She tried to kill herself at age 15, so overwhelmingly when women quote-unquote try to kill themselves, they don't go through with it, it's just a cry for help. So when men try to kill themselves, they are much more serious about it and much more successful. Okay, Wall Street Journal article here, and the inspiration for this stream. The Tragic Mind. Wars fought to end tyranny risk chaos and bloodshed. The tragedians of ancient Greece captured the cruel trade offs of noble ends pursued in an imperfect world. So, Robert Kaplan has written more than a dozen books on geopolitics, history, international relations, and defense policy. And this relates to that relationship question and the question of did I have to show that? that uh, indecent image to start my last live stream on Martin Luther King Day. So Robert Kaplan's perhaps best-known book is Balkan Ghosts, 1993, where he made his name as a far-sighted American observer of ethnic conflict in distant places. So The Tragic Mind is his 21st book, and is one that he's written as an act of self-flagellation. So you can't trust things that people say about themselves, you can't trust the things that people say about other people, right? People rarely say what they mean, rarely mean what they say. You have to understand everything critically, place it in context, you know, figure out what are the incentives and get multiple sources of information. So he visited Saddam Hussein's Iraq in 1986 and it proved for him more terrifying than anything he'd experienced before. He saw Iraq as one vast prison yard lit by high wattage lamps. So, in the wake of 9-11, his mind, scarred by Saddam Hussein, is quick to support the Iraq War, despite his worries about what would befall the country in the post-Saddam era. And then he says, the clinical depression I suffered for years afterward because of my mistake about the Iraq War led me to write this book. Okay, so his mistake in supporting the invasion of Iraq was a very serious mistake. It did show really bad judgment. but. I think one is taking oneself overly seriously if, if you go into clinical depression for years afterward over something like this. Right? The, the, the normal human reaction to this is this is an ex- exercise in excessive self-regard. I was a journalist who got too close to my story. It's interesting. Dennis Prager had noted similar things about Iraq, but then came to the very opposite conclusion. So. When Dennis Prager was travelling in the Middle East, he met an Iraqi said, ''We Iraqis are the cruelest people in the world.'' And so Dennis did not support the 2003 invasion of Iraq because he was too concerned about the aftermath, the chaos. So in April 2004, Robert Kaplan embedded with US Marines during the First Battle of Fallujah and he changed his mind about the war. So he witnessed something far worse than even the worst of Iraq under Saddam, Saddam, the bloody anarchy of all against all, that the prodigiously brutal Saddam had kept under a lid of tyranny. So he says that he failed his test as a realist on the greatest issue of our time. He then cites the medieval Persian philosopher Abu Hamid al-Khazali, that a year of anarchy is worse than a hundred years of tyranny. And I would say it depends on the situation. Sometimes a year of anarchy is worse than a hundred years of tyranny, and sometimes a year of tyranny is worse than a hundred years of anarchy. Overall, I agree with the sentiment. I would usually prefer situations of tyranny than situations of anarchy. So I am on the right, and part of being on the right means your greatest fear is disorder, chaos. And uh, Kaplan then says, well, the ancient Greek says that, said that uh, chaos is worse than tyranny. So Kaplan says tragedy is about briefly trying to fix the world, but only within limits. Yeah, that's tragic sense of life. Makes sense. So it was the Iraq debacle that taught him how cruelly important such limits could be. But well, now, in 2023, it's not at all clear that Iraq is worse off. It seems, on the face of it, that Iraq is better off for us having invaded in 2003. I admit that that's not clear. So, uh, Kaplan feels that his writings help promote a war in Iraq. Well, I guarantee you that if Kaplan didn't write about Iraq we still would have invaded Iraq in 2003. So his writings were not decisive. They were not even particularly important. So he has an excessive self-regard for his own opinions. It would be like me you know, making live streams with a few hundred total views about you know, my position on this or that invasion and then you know accepting responsibility for the consequences of that invasion. So, Kaplan's book, Balkan Ghost is known to have caused Bill Clinton to delay American military intervention in the former Yugoslavia, so he thought that such involvement would be wasted on a people programmed by nature to kill one another. So, Balkan Ghost so depressed President Clinton that it led to inaction on his part, and this filled Kaplan with lifelong remorse. While I supported military intervention in print and on TV, my book had the opposite effect of what I intended. So. If you're writing a book, or you're doing a live stream, all right, I think your primary obligation is to tell the truth. Particularly about public matters, right? You're not obliged to tell the truth that your neighbors are engaged in you know, an incestuous relationship. You're not obliged to tell the truth that your, you know, your boss suffers from irritable bowel syndrome. But about public matters, I think your primary obligation is to tell the truth, and then let the consequences fall where they may. So, somewhat grandly, Kaplan asserted ownership of the region. I had the Balkans virtually to myself before the media horde arrived. So he had no choice in his own mind but to accept moral responsibility. I mean, what excessive self-regard? Uneasy lies the head that wears the frown. Now, I, I think all you know, writers are you know, tempted to the histrionic, grandiose, narcissistic sense of self. I remember I broke uh, stories about the spread of HIV infections in the San Fernando Valley Porn industry and at one point in, in a draft of an essay or a book I wrote something about, you know, I'm really sorry that I didn't identify patient zero earlier. Uh, but you know, that's grandiose. So I just love that he feels like he had the Balkans, right, the entire Balkans to himself until the meteor horde arrived. And so he has no choice but to accept moral responsibility for the consequences of his book. No, when you're writing a book or making a live stream about public matters, your primary function is just to tell the truth. Your primary function is not to try to shape public policy. Okay, and then I read a good thing here in the Washington Post about laughter. Currently, you're 30 times more likely to laugh when you're around other people than when you're on your own. And that is my life experience. I remember watching this um, Monty Python movie, The Meaning of Life. I saw it on my own in an empty theater and I hardly laughed at all. And then I watched it with my brother and friends on, on VHS about a year later and just laughed and laughed and laughed. So, there are all sorts of mysteries that are only available to those in the dance. So, this idea, according to a scientist who studies laughter, you're 30 times more likely to laugh when you're around other people than when you're on your own. I think there's really important important insights to, to be gleaned from that. You know, walking five miles is pretty effortless if you're doing it with people that you like. If you're doing it on your own, then it's a bit more challenging. So laughter is a social phenomenon. Contagious laughter demonstrates affection and affiliation. Just being in the presence of people, you expect to be funny or prime at the laughter within you. So laughter apparently lessens depression and anxiety, increases feelings of relaxation, improves cardiovascular health, releases endorphins that boost mood and increase tolerance for pain, lowers stress levels, lowers your fight or flight response. So you feel better when you're laughing, right? We are wired to mirror one another. So laughter spreads around a room just like a yawn. We tend to copy the behaviour and laughter of others. Someone else starts laughing. And this sensory information is then converted to the same area of our brain. Laughter strengthens relationships. People naturally want to be around those who make them feel good the way that laughing does. Yeah, good people make you feel good, bad people make you feel bad. That's the best way to detect psychopaths, right? People who make you feel bad tend to be bad for you. People who make you feel good tend to be good for you. You're much more likely to catch a laugh from someone you know. Laughter is a kind of a molecular building block of friendship. We crave the company of individuals who give us these good feelings. Apparently great apes are documented uh, behaving similarly. So laughter is a play signal in humans and many other animals. So 30 times more likely to laugh with other people than when you're on your own. So the contagious laugh response is immediate and involuntary It involves the most direct communication possible between people brain to brain. So babies apparently aren't born to do this. People learn to laugh contagiously eventually, but we don't know how or exactly when it begins. But I just love that insight that we're 30 times more likely to laugh when we're around other people than we're more than on our own. Did you know that uh, it's scientifically been proven that sex is 30 times better when you do it with someone else than when you just do it on your own? I mean, going for a walk is you know, 5, five, ten times better when you do it with other people than when you're on your own. I remember in, in therapy, I'd tell my therapist uh, during a particularly lonely stretch of my life that i go to synagogue every morning in, in Dublin, and that was my most consistent uh, social interaction, so I'd go to synagogue for about 45 minutes to an hour every morning, and then the rest of the day I'd be on my own. My the therapist reminded me, hey, normal people spend, you know, six to eight to ten hours a day around other people. You may want to up that. So I was just sitting on a bench here in Kuji, uh, looking out at the ocean, and uh, just you know, struck up a conversation with a stranger, and... Uh, he lived in Boston, so we started talking about gridiron football, right? It's a wonderful way for two blokes who are strangers can uh, start to connect and to bond. Sports saving lives by bringing people together. Baruch Hashem. Bye-bye.